So, Tony, what you and I know that anyone watching this video doesn't know is that we've already started this conversation once, <laughs> and then there's been a, a, a meltdown of um, computers, and it didn't work, and we've come back in. And the reason I mention that is because I really don't want to do it all again because it gets so false. Because uh, the whole point of these conversations is to make them genuine. So um, I had started us off by saying, um, well, I think actually the first thing was that I noticed that by looking at my camera, I could see two of your books on my shelf, which in the break while you've been sorting out the computers, I've picked up. Here's your one on death. Here's your one on the daemon. I think there's some others as well. So the reason I mentioned those, apart from the books you've written, they're great, is that for me, the, what motivates me behind writing all these books is my own search for meaning to make sense of this thing we're in. Um, and you had started telling me that it was very similar for you. And I would like you to try and pick up on that theme because that's what I'd like to explore with you. Really. Yeah, it's, it's one of these things that I think as writers, we, we, don't, we don't write for fame. We, don't find, we definitely don't write for fortune because that just doesn't happen. Um, what we write for is because we want to get our ideas out there. But in many ways, we use it as a, a self-reference because what we're really doing is trying to understand ourselves as to who we are, what we are in this seemingly mindless universe that, that seems to not be attuned to us in any shape or form. You know, and the idea that there's this endless universe that seems to go on forever and in terms of we are a tiny link in a genetic chain, or are we more? And if we are more, you know, we, we need to very quickly try to understand what that is in the very short time that we have the opportunity to do so. And this is what I've been doing all through my life. And my writing is just, it's everything about me is to do with trying to understand. And if other people are along for the ride, that is brilliant. And if my writing resonates with other people, that is wonderful. Um, but really, it is, it is my journey and my understanding. And funnily enough, it's really wonderful to be talking to you because um, many people out there will probably not be aware of this. But without you and without your writing, I'd never even started because many years ago, way back uh, in probably, I can't remember now, probably about 1998, 99, my mother-in-law bought me um, a book, The Jesus Mysteries, and I took it on holiday with me um, to a place in the Peloponnese in, in Greece um, and a place called Stupa. And while I was there, I read the book. And although I had started researching my first book, I went, when I got home, I started to rewrite it again because I discovered the concept of the daemon for the first time in your wonderful book. And it so resonated with me. And then when we were in subsequent contact, it was even better because, you know, that, and to be talking to you now as somebody that I wouldn't have become a writer without that reference. I think the daemon was the thing, particularly the Gnostic concept, as you described in the book, was what made so much sense to me and put it all into perspective. And suddenly all the pieces fell into place, you know, and it's always that kind of, as I call it, synchronicity. You know, it's the kind of <laughs> synchronicities that just happen for a reason. And, and now we're friends and we, we've shared platforms together. And it's absolutely wonderful the way life just works out in terms of that. So what was it about that? Tony, what was it about the, the daemon that resonated then and still for you? I think it was the, I was, I was struggling to understand in terms of when, when we live our lives, what is the guiding voice that seems to bring about inspiration, seems to bring about 
pointing us in a particular direction rather than another. And I was intrigued as to not only what that voice was, but how it knew the things it knew. And it was only when, particularly in your writing, you pointed out that there is the daemon, which is the higher self in Gnostic belief systems, but there's also the Edelon, which is the everyday personality that exists within what we now, what I now argue is possibly the simulation. And it was those two factors together. Had you written about an Edel, the Edelons, or had you just written about the daemon, I think I wouldn't have really got it. It wouldn't have really made sense to me, but it was the kind of the partition of consciousness um, that particularly intrigued me. And of course, a few years later, I then started reading the, the Philip Pullman books and his concept of the daemon, which clearly is Gnostic, but he never ever mentions um, the concept of the Edelon. You know, he has daemons as these kind of um, entities or creatures that follow somebody around in, in animal form uh, and everything else. And then they, before puberty, they move around and they change. Would you, do you, I just, I've never thought this, I've never asked myself um, from the Pullman idea. So do you, do you see your daemon as having an animal form? Could it have an animal form if it did? What we we have mean? myself and my group, we've discussed this over many years and we definitely conclude that probably it may not have um, a necessarily an animal form, but it tends to be the opposite sex of what you are. Uh, you t I tend to, to come to the conclusion, and many people have backed me up on this, that if you're male, your daemon tends to be female and vice versa. Um, whether this is in fact correct is beside the point, but it seems to work for me in terms of that. Because I don't know if you know, but there's um, a guy called Myron Dial that I've worked a lot with, and Myron manifested his daemon um, when he was four years of age. And since then, this entity has been guiding him, talks to him, takes him to altered states of consciousness, takes him to another location, which is known as Zelcon, where he goes when he's, um, he's, he experiences temporal lobe epilepsy. So when he goes into fugue states or when he goes into um, aura states, this is where he goes. And, and funnily enough, I'm doing an event in California at the end of May and only a few days ago I received a very excited phone call from one of the co-founders of the event it's called contact in the desert and she was particularly excited because she literally had just checking me out had read the book the daemon literally last weekend and because she had daemon has been manifesting all her life she was so excited she needed to talk to me about it now clearly both you and I are fascinated by the whole Gnostic worldview, you know, the idea of the Pleroma and the Canoma and the reality behind the reality. But it really was your work that made that happen, you know, and- uh, I definitely feel that, I definitely, you know, it, that my, my process, I mean, I'm, I, I, the last period, of last uh, 10, 15 years, whatever, has been increasingly about um, a philosophical understanding which can enlarge and incorporate my actual direct experiences and one of the puzzling things to me is I have to work from the inside out you know I wish I was someone who could do research but I have got this completely back to front way of working whereby I have I just walk with my daemon I just walk with and I put the questions and I wait for the replies and then I question the replies like mad and push them it's not like it's not like revelation but it's definitely like and I'm looking for that moment where the thing comes and it just goes, oh, there, that, follow that, follow that, follow that, what's yeah. that? And then the next thing, and then I, and sometimes, and it used to be, it used to take sometimes months, and now it takes hours. And 
uh, and it just moves. It's so exciting, but it is li I'm, it's like an interchange. And then only then can I go and read whatever it is I'm thinking about and find out, oh yeah, they've already said all of this. And this is, this is very similar. And, and it's all back to front for me. And because I just, I don't know what I'm looking for in the research until I've actually gone, made the journey on the inside. I, I'm with you totally on that in that it seems that, and if you, you, you agree or disagree with my overall hypothesis of cheating the ferryman, the idea that the daemon has lived your life before and therefore can guide you because it's already followed the path or has followed many paths in your life. And it is there to say, okay, this time round, um, I want Tim to take this route and I need to give him some gentle nudges or inklings to move him in that direction. Because I find it's very similar in my own writing in that I will be guided by the inner voice, by the daemon, to read certain things in certain ways. But they'll, it'll point me to them. It'll either use incredible synchronicities or it will, it will just, as I said, synchronicity. You know, it will, it will create a set of circumstances whereby my, my attention will follow a certain path and i know that at the end of that path will be a pot of gold there'll be a treasure there'll be something there and the daemon is saying i get i've got to get you on this route now because i know where the intersection is going to take place in six months or a year's time but i have to get you there and position you in this location and in this i'm reminded of um rudyard kipling and in kipling's famous well it's not necessarily famous but his autobiography something of me he discusses his own daemon there's one famous statement where he turns around and he says you need to wait for your daemon to speak and when the daemon speaks you follow his guidance because he had a series of incidents in his life he argued that most of his stories and indeed nearly all of his short stories were created by his daemon he just was a dictator he dictated the information but the daemon showed incredible future knowledge and it's something as you know i've written a book on jb Priestley, and Priestley used it used the term fip future influencing past because there was one particular case where he had written a short story called the old men of pevensey which is in i think it's pook of pook's hill so a series of stories for children he wrote and in it he bases the story in pevensey castle in Kent. It's like, I always get it wrong. I think it's Kent rather than East Sussex. During the time of the Norman invasions. And he has two characters, the two old men of Pevensey Castle. And they're in um, one of the, a, a tower within Pevensey Castle. And they have a treasure with them and they can't get out. And like most writers, he had painted himself into a corner in terms of the plot because he didn't know how he was going to get his characters to escape. And he goes walking in his garden in his house in Batemans in, in Sussex. And the daemon comes to him and the daemon turns around to him and says what you need to do is to have a sea well inside the tower and they discover the sea well they knock at a wall and they find that there's something you know they sound the wall and they realize that the wall is not solid they break down the section and they find a sea well that goes down to the moat they jump down there they find a little boat and they escape but as Kipling said to the daemon, you know, met in, 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 his, in his mind, he said, but there, there is no, there, there isn't this in the castle. And the daemon just said, go ahead with the story. <laughs> he then subsequently discovered around about eight or nine years later that the seawall, the actual sea, the tower, the, the actual um, mm. sea thing that he had described was found in the very tower he placed the storyline. And as he said, I said, 
I didn't know that at the time. It was only my future self that knew that. And this is leads you to believe that your, da your daemon is your own future self or is your own self, your guiding spirit. As you say in your books, you know, it's the, it's, it's the you that is the, your guide that the gods have given you from the start. You know, you just need to listen. So there's, right, there's a whole load of fascinating things you've said, um, which is what I love about talking to you, Tony, because you're, you're full of interesting perspectives. Um, numbers of which I disagree with. Um, uh, so uh, I don't know where we should go, which one to explore, because they're all about how we make sense of this. And, um, and you know, I, I could be misunderstanding, and that's why I, 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 part of me just goes, I'm not sure about that. Um, so there's a the whole thing about the future, that's, and how, whether what's happening there, because something's happening there. I'm, I'm not sure. Well, I've got some ideas myself about what that might be, but uh, there's that. There's, you just dropped in, in passing, that this might be a simulation, which is a fucking enormous idea. <laughs> and another idea that um, I don't resonate in the way of a simulation, but I'm very interested in exploring. Um, and then the other thing is about the idea of, well, there's what's the daemon? We started on that. That's a huge thing. Um, or, or as I, I, in Soul Story, I've started calling it the genius, the, 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 the Latin version, just because of the way we use that word these days. Um, and then there's the stuff about death. And obviously they all link in, although they're all quite different ideas, really, aren't they? There's the, there's the idea that one of your uh, particularly, um, I think of as particularly around yourself, that I, I don't know that I've heard anywhere else, actually. Um, is this idea that the eternal recurrence in one's own life um, and that you were saying the daemon has lived your life before. My own sense is the daemon has lived other lives before in the sense that it's the deepest part of the psyche, the soul, which has had other things. Um, I, on the face of it, I find the idea that it's lived Tim's life before, a combination uh, of being a little bit soul-destroying, a little bit like, really? And, and, and kind of impossible to actually get my head around how you imagine that could work, the mechanics of that. It's like, so we've had this conversation before, or, mm. or it like, does every, you know, it's, it, is it, do you, because you know, it's either Groundhog Day, either it's just a repeat, in which case it doesn't seem to serve any purpose, or it's Groundhog Day in which each one of us is, is learning or growing or changing. But the thing that I find logistically hard to gain, but there's the, there's the issue of does that, is that, does it make sense? But there's a, the logistic side of it. It's just like, well, one slight change and everything is different. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. Um, so that, or, or I'm a puppet in your universe or conversely, you're a puppet in mine. I, how do you, I don't get how that, that can work really. Okay, the first thing is the evidence from science. Okay, and the evidence in terms of first, we'll, we'll approach the, the simulation argument. They're, they're linked? The, the, yeah, yeah, they're linked. Yeah, uh, okay. Okay, the first thing is in terms of. Before, actually, I want to stop you. Before, can, is it possible, because I really want to go there, but before, because there's a whole load of stuff around the simulation which will open up, and I just worry we'll end up going into that. But okay. before we do that, just this issue of just the, the very basic idea of that, the, the fact that if we are changing, how can we live the same lives? That the minute it starts off, it would be completely different. I mean, just one trajectory that changed would mean 
a different everything. And, and the, the creativity, if, if the universe is creative at all, and if certainly if we have any creativity, the, how would it possibly be the same life? Well, the continuity is the daemon. So the continuity is the immortal part of you that has lived the life many, many times. But the daemon, I always use the analogy of, Groundhog Day is a very good analogy in terms of the movie. And in fact, on my own podcast, I've actually interviewed um, Danny Rubin, the guy that wrote Groundhog Day. Um, but the idea is that in order for something to evolve, for something to move on, for me, you have to learn from your mistakes. You have to be aware of the things you did wrong in some subliminal way last time you lived this life. You know, the idea that we all make mistakes in our lives. And it, wouldn't it be wonderful if we we're in the scenario that somehow you could put those mistakes right? You could be aware or in some way of making but, it, but in groundhog wrong... day it only happens to one person yes because everyone else is just doing the same thing they're kind of well no they're not and this is the interesting thing isn't it because if you think a moment's recollection of the groundhog day movie really is very similar to your own argument here that every time that connor's made a different decision he changed Other the lives of everybody up. else yeah that is true you know, everybody else's lives changed as well it, it's more it's more that it's like or certainly to begin with he was you know he realized it was the same and he was waking up yeah. on the same day now my problem is you know he wakes up on the same day so what is the same day is it like the moment of my birth is the same each time but then after that god only knows um is well it no it takes it it can take it back even further than that because there's been a whole myriad of decisions made by your parents your grandparents yeah. your great-grandparents as to where you are located now there is growing evidence that the universe is 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 digital in the way it is programmed and that it is made effectively of information and again this is not my hypothesis this is the hypothesis of some of the world's leading quantum physicists including people like craig hogan at the perimeter institute and these individuals and i'm thinking juan maldacana and specifically a guy called jacob beckenstein who died last year i think it was who's an israeli quantum physicist and these guys are really coming to the conclusion that at, the, at its base level, the universe is information and that consciousness in some way is related to the, well, I suppose to what, use a quantum, for, to, quantum term, the collapse of the wave function of that particular reality. Now, again, before he so died. We'll, so we'll, hang on a second, Anthony. Okay. Um, I, I, by the way, I'm absolutely with you in terms of the, the i think there's a there's i just wanted to to just divide the idea that this is in that we the best way to understand this is through the concept of information which yeah. i absolutely get and the idea that therefore it's been programmed those are two quite different ideas well yeah but the, the let's just roll back slightly again the um towards the end of his life stephen hawking wrote a series of papers with a guy called frank hartle who is a researcher at cern and they come up with a conclusion they call the top-down hypothesis of quantum physics. And the top-down hypothesis of quantum physics extrapolates from the idea that the act of measurement, ergo the act of observation, if you want to extract from there, collapses a potentiality of reality, i.e. a statistical chance that the subatomic particles will be located in one place or another. The act of measurement or the act of observation collapses those potentialities into an actuality and we're doing this all the time so what he argued was that every every potential outcome of every decision is already encoded within 
the zero point field, the, the, the mega hologram, whatever we want to call it, the mind of God, whatever we want to call it. But it is all, it, they are already in potentiality. And each consciousness collapses the particular wave function to accommodate what they're looking at or what they are perceiving. Oh, now we, we've this is this is what I, this is lovely we just got to roll with it because it's like yeah i i um because we we've we're gonna have to go back and pick up the yeah the uh this again i just want to divide i mean look look our quantum physics what has obviously been a mystery for 100 years and very very interesting um i'm not at all sure that that many physicists are saying that it's involved with consciousness doing anything Personally, I'm not at all convinced it's consciousness doing anything, but certainly it does look like that on a very primitive level, we can understand this as, as information, which is potential information, which will become actualized when or, or specified. So, but, but what you're looking at there, it feels to me, is not like, you know, decisions leading to this. It's more like on a very, very primitive level, you have uh, what could be best described by mathematical probability wave functions becoming something which can be best described by different sets of equations which are specific to time space space time so that that and that transition how that transition happens is of course there's a some numbers of very very interesting theories none of which have been fully accepted widely but the the jump to it's being done somehow by the observer in terms of it being conscious seems like a big big jump to me it's it's not it's not a jump i'm making um oh, it's, okay. a jump, it's a jump that's been made by some of the world's leading physicists i, mean, I cite the example for instance of john archibald wheeler well uh, but wheeler, wheeler backtracked on it as towards did, the end of his life we, did he yeah as did uh, and and the, the guy who you know he backtracked from that so that it was about interaction with other it it's like the thing which which for me when i look at the the that whole question what what it seems the the it feels like look the whole universe the description for me of this simple description would be it's the one in relationship to itself and it's so there's there's obviously it's one thing but it's constantly many things and everything right right down to the simplest wave function right the way up to an elephant is interrelating with the rest so mm -hmm. that that sense that everything is a subject and an object, everything, even the wave function, means yes. that when it encounters, when something which functions on a probability level encounters something which doesn't, which is on a more emergent level, and is mm. or it may be still a probability, but it's much more, you know, it's like this may still be a probability, but it's so likely to stay my hand that every time I look away, it's hand. Oh, there it is, hand. It's so that the... That's a good point. So the actuality is increasing, which I think was, that's what we, one of the things Wheeler was saying. So that, mm. so, that, so that really what's happening is that it's the meeting of subject and object, which is happening on every level of reality, which is fashioning something definite from something which, which couldn't be anything. Well, on the lowest level, on the base level, we might be able to say it could be anything. But by the time it gets to the quantum level, it's, it's, it, it's not anything. It's just like, well, it could be there or it could be there. It's like it, you know, the mm, particle Yeah, exactly. Be, yeah, because it's to do it? with with the location in space time. You know? Yeah, and so it comes exactly... into space time through interaction. I think that's where Wheeler ended up. I'm not a physicist, so I may be wrong. But that's yeah, my sense. Neither am I. But uh, as I understand it, you know, the idea is there seems to be, and from my latest readings of papers in quantum physics, there still seems to be this issue of 
what brings about, what stimulates the collapse of the wave function. You know, to argue that an act of observation or an act of measurement or anything else brings about the collapse of a wave function means there's some form of agency involved here. Not necessarily. And what agency is. Why, why, why does that, why is that true? Well, I wonder whether, you know, I think the whole idea of the collapse is a, is a particular language which, you know, came in with Ball, mm. wasn't it? Or one of those early people. And we've kind of been left with this idea that there's a wave function and collapses. But actually what we've got is a mathematical equation and then we've got something specific, which is still mathematical. I mean, it's still not like yeah. a thing you can hold. Um, and it's, it's a transition of a mathematical equation, which is very, which could, is a probability equation to a mathematical, which is something definite. And so that points to something, like you said, interesting. It means that we're dealing with, the, 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 on, a, on a very low level, this is not definite, it's more malleable. And things like the quantum arrays suggest that might go up quite high yeah, and, you yeah. Know, uh, but still that's the transition and and uh, but if if everything is it, if if we let go of this is one of the ideas in soul story that i've i've i i really uh found very powerful to work with is to get rid of the idea of there being either an objective universe or it being all subjective like a lot of the mm. spiritual traditions it's all in consciousness but instead get it, it, it to be an interactive universe a relational universe where everything is real is in relation and what exists is is always the relationship so what exists now is a bit like um uh alfred whitehead an occasion mm -hmm. well, this is this event but this is the interaction of the universe and tim and then but there's also the interaction of the universe and the parts that make up the table and the interaction of the garden with the plants and they're all everything is interacting and that interaction of subject and object which everything is both is what the universe is so that of course when they when a probability wave function interacts with something to measure it which is something on a more emergent level it now because what you it's well there is no probability wave function on its own actually it only it becomes something definite when it's in only ever in reaction in, in response Did that, that I'm, I'm not sure i explained that particularly well did that make some sense no it did no it's it's an interesting idea it is still the the issue of the question of and this is going to get incredibly deep and i i always know that when we get conversations like this it's going to get incredibly deep the idea of the role of whatever a sentience is whatever it is that's doing the observing i'm sitting here now in my in my library and i know i'm something observing something i know that the only thing I actually know with any certainty is that I'm some form of observer of, of stimuli that's taking place. But other than that, I have no real genuine idea of exactly what I am. All I know is that something is processing something. So my, my brain, if we take the, the classic example from materialist reductionism and, and even from modern uh, science, is the idea that in some way, my sensory apparatus is, is, is bringing in external stimuli through my eyes, through my sensory situation, through my ears and everything else, and is taking that data and creating an internal model within my brain of what the external reality is. But that is, again, a facsimile of what let's, may or may not be out there. Okay, so I want to, I want to come against that idea. 
okay. because it's, a, it's obviously it's a very, very common one. I'm constantly hearing, especially in, in science, of like, oh, you're creating the world with your brain. What's really out there is quantum particles, and then you create this world. Obviously, that's the, the whole reductionist thing, which for me is so superficial. The whole redu the reductionism is, I'm sure mm. we would agree, is like it's completely, oh, yeah, totally. completely dead end. So I, I take an emergentist view, which is that the whole process, this creative process, is becoming more or, or building on itself, and new aspects of reality are emerging. So through that, so that, so that what, what I'm looking at, it feels to me, is not a representation in my brain. What I'm looking at is the world because what exists is me in relationship to it and that's what this is that that there's no representation going on this is it this is the world i'm touching the world i'm meeting you this is my body on this level of emergence go back down another level and you'll find lots of empty space and atomic atoms buzzing around go back to on that you'll find probabilities they're all real everything's unfolding into greater emergence and on this level of of uh, biology, biological sensory perception, this information, which is my body, meets the world, and this is what exists. And it's not some representation, it's actually the world. And then it will move on to a completely different level, which is the, the psyche or the soul or the pleroma, the whole the non-material domain, which we're having this conversation. And that's another thing again, but the, and they're all real and more emergent. So I, I'm not sure we need to posit the whole qualia, you know, the brain is creating and a facsimile. It feels like this is the way I perceive what's actually there. And as I perceive it, something new comes into reality. You know, with the eyes came red, for instance, you know, that kind of idea. It's so like it's a kind of, it's kind of the reverse. It's something that um, I interviewed recently. Um, oh, I can't think of his name now. Uh, 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 a consciousness studies expert, Max Velmans. And Max has a fascinating theory that we, we've got it the, the, way, the other way around, in that, that the external world is fed outwards from us, rather than us taking it in. You know, it's rather like when he was describing it, I was reminded of, you know, those famous line drawings um, either done by Descartes or discussing Descartes' ideas, where the idea of the act of observation the information flows outwards. So my brain thinks of something and then, oh, shoot, my battery is about to go. Um, can you just give me two seconds? Yeah, I just of course. Need to and plug it no in. problem. And so I suppose you can edit out that um, problematic situation. Okay. So, so, well, so you, you were talking about this, uh, the idea that we're projecting the world out. So there's two ideas there. One is we create the world. One is we project mm. the world. I'm saying personally, neither of those. It, what I'm saying is kind of really common sense. I'm saying we meet the world and where we meet, this appears, that everything is that. There is no world. There's only the world as being met by part of itself because there's only the one in relationship to itself. And that's and everything's relational. Time is relational. Space is relational. Everything is relational and including uh, subject and object. So that the, the, what I'm experiencing is the relationship between the information on all the levels of emergence, which is my window and my garden, as I'm looking out the window here, and this particular organic form and how it can receive light, for instance. 
and that the interaction of the two is I'm seeing what's there. There's, there's no creation of anything. There's no, it's just like, there it is, I'm meeting it. And then, as I said, then we deal with the psyche, which is a completely different thing, because that's obviously a non-material forms. But if we take, say, if you look at the brain and you do an fMRI scan of somebody observing something, you do find that there is a, an inner creation, the certain parts of the brain fire. For instance, when somebody plays tennis, and this is an interesting point, isn't it? When somebody plays tennis and they do an fMRI scan of the brain, certain parts of the brain light up, which is indicating that the person is doing the actions. And then when you ask somebody to then think about doing the actions, the same parts of the brain light up, which yeah. means there's a direct one-to-one -one relationship between actually physically doing something and thinking about doing something, which rather supports your point of view on that, doesn't it? The idea that there is, it's a far closer relationship. So how do you account for things such as, I don't know, um, entheogens, uh, dimethyltryptamine, psychedelics, these kind of things? What, within that scenario, what is the, what is happening when somebody takes a psychedelic substance and goes into altered states of consciousness? Okay, so, so the big jump for me, and this comes back to the work I did on the Gnostics, actually, and it was a resurgence of that that came back to me and started me off on this philosophy I've been following for a while, which I kind of see as a neo-Gnosticism, but it turns, it, turns, it turns the Gnosticism on its head, in a sense, mm -hmm. Because it sees, it's rather than the whole spiritual idea of always a fall or emanation or coming down into the lower, I, I, I'm, I'm very, very attracted for all sorts of reasons to the idea of the emergence and evolution of reaching up to the higher. Anyway, there's various reasons for that. So the, the big jump for me was, the, the thing I got from the Gnostics was, oh, look, you're experiencing a flow of sensation and a flow of imagination. And that's the body and the soul. And this experience we're having of the psyche or the soul, this is not a, you know, a side effect. It's a whole realm. It exists. So we can have the canoma or the pleroma or any names you want to give that, but there's an imaginal realm and there's a sensory realm. And I'm in both. And I'm experiencing both. And then there's what's their relationship. So the relationship which I'm exploring is that the imaginal realm has evolved from the sensory realm, but it is not dependent on it. It's not a byproduct of it. It's a whole level of emergence in its own right, um, which has come from being conscious of images. So that once you, once consciousness has arisen and you've got consciousness of sensation, then you've got the possibility to be conscious of the past. And if, you're, if I'm conscious of the tree I saw yesterday, it's not a tree, it's an image of a tree. So you've got a whole world beginning to arise and evolve which is populated by images with then images of images ideas concepts and blah blah, blah 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 until now what you and i live in is this massive extraordinary uh realm which if you take certain chemicals and, and the last time i did it, i had probably the most profound experience i've ever had in my life and the insight which came actually just after the experience was and i'm not saying this is always true tony this is just maybe true seemed at the time an interesting idea was I thought, oh these are poisons these are the i'm intoxicated these are toxins and I, and what's happening is i'm the, the link between what for me is two distinct levels of information the biological level and the psychological or the, the soul level two levels of of, of 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 information which are like this right now which do this at death and in the psychedelic experience, kind of do that. 
so that mm. I, that all of the, you know, my attention was so far away from my body that I was catapulted into these other realms, as you know. So, and, and experiences, experience their depths. So my, the thing that I'm following is that the idea you've said, information, it's evolving information, but that each level of emergence has its own reality. The, on this reality, it's this. And then on this reality, it's what we're experiencing. It's also this. And then there's a subject and object relationship. So the psyche is no longer the subjective side of the body. It, that seems to be prevalent in science. It's not at all. It feels like, no, the subjective experience of the body is sensation. The subjective experience of the soul is imagination. And there's an objective level to the imagination as well. And you can go off into that objective realm and explore it. In fact, I think we're doing it right now as we share mm. objective ideas. Because this is interesting, because all the time when you were, you were discussing that, I was reminded of the work of Henri Colbin and the idea of the imaginal. Yeah. And particularly the, the, the way that the Sufis actually see this as a concept of the imaginal is something that is outside of us and independent of us in some way and it's a place we can inhabit and move into now again when you were saying that there was something uh, really fascinating then it stimulated my ideas on this is that um, i don't know if you know but there's a group of researchers at the moment at imperial college that are doing research into dmt uh, the money's being put up i think by anton bilton the the multimillionaire and there's a group of researchers and under control conditions, they're taking intravenously, they're taking DMT and then reporting back their experiences because they're trying to, to almost map the, the DMT realm, you know, the Terence McKenna idea of machine elves and everything. And one of the researchers I'm working with, oh, not working with, but I'm associated with a friend of mine, um, he had a very curious experience, um, which vindicates what you've just said, whereby he, he took the DMT intravenously found himself in the dmt zone and when he's in the dmt space an entity comes over to him and says please do not do this this way this is the wrong way to do it you are not doing it in the right way please do not do it like this he then finds himself coming to and two weeks later he then takes the dmt again finds himself in the same location and the very same entity came over and said exactly the same thing mm. it said this is not the way to do it suggesting that a the, the entity had a sense of independence from him so in other words it wasn't just a creation of his subconscious because it was telling him something he didn't want to hear but more importantly that the entity was saying that the route you are taking to enlightenment the route you are taking to coming into my world almost you know almost shamanic and the point you were making there is almost shamanic isn't it in yeah. terms of the upper the lower and the middle world and it said it's wrong now, I think your point is a very valid one here because one, and we could have a discussion about this, that if you actually take entheogens of any description, your, your, your experience is, is, is not as valid because you're not going there with a map, you're not going there as being trained, you're almost being catapulted into this place and it's dangerous effectively, isn't it? You know, it's like somebody doing a shamanic journey without having shamanic training and wandering around in the upper world or the lower world, not knowing where they're going. Well, I mean, it's interesting because I, I did have an experience last year where I did that and I did it because I was with a shaman and because I'd done something comparable um, 
15 years ago I'm, um, I've been experimenting with these things all my life but and I and from that experience I'd, I'd come to exactly that conclusion Tony I'd gone I'm never doing this in I'm never doing this without somebody who knows what they're doing because mm. these things are these things are these things are these things are strong so so where do we get to so we were playing with um where did we get to we've covered so many things um, <laughs> we have we have um so uh where should we pick up on uh we have the idea of it being information mm. let's go for that come on let's focus okay. that because this one so 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 you said early on that you that you we both agreed information is a great category there's a lot we could say on that but we agree so let's 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 go the bit i never go for is that that leads to the idea of simulation now i'm i'm really i really like computer metaphors Mm. feels to me like you know newton newton's time was the time of the great machines the universe became a great machine that's natural and helpful now we're living in the time of information technology it's the information age so the universe is information it's really helpful but it's a big jump to start calling it a simulation of something rather than its own self and, and your I'm, point how is, does it help yeah your point is a valid one and there's one you know as, as a a trained historian in terms of myself and everything else as well a sociological historian that clearly the ideas and the technology around you will necessarily create the framework whereby you will interpret the the world around you and of course yes that the mechanistic universe uh, of course we'd have the the, the original universe of the the um, the medieval doctors and everything else as well in the middle the animistic church. universe before that you know, and yes so we have the kind of the theory yeah. of thomas kuhn and theory of revolutions and everything but effectively what this does is it creates a framework whereby we can we can we can understand in some way the reality around us and i very much take your point that now because we now understand the concept of digitization we understand the concept of simulation in the sense of virtual reality simulations that suddenly we're going to be jumping on that bandwagon it's not necessarily jumping on a bandwagon but it's a way of using something as a tool for understanding of yes. what may, might be an ultimate reality now i think when people use the arguments of the simulation idea i think it's it can be misinterpreted as as if there is some kind of it's running on some kind of computer or something like that. Uh, what, I think it's more a simulation of what? A, a, sim, a simulation that reality itself is some form of simulation. What's it simulating? It's simulating what, itself. What's it copying? That's an interesting point in terms of a simulation by inst by very implication it, suggests it, a copy. Yeah. It's let's let's go back one one step as to to why. A lot of the researchers are coming to this conclusion and why the people like Craig Hogan and Mal DeCarma and everybody. And it's all to do with how, what really is reality out there? What, what is the template that reality is running upon? What, is there just a three-dimensional universe out there? And you know, as a philosopher, the big debates over the centuries over even space and the idea if you didn't have objects in space, is it, I can't remember who it was now, was it Hegel? Um, I can't remember the guy that said that, uh, Mac, wasn't it? And the idea that if you didn't have objects in space, there would be no space because the objects are the things that relate space to each other. And if there's no objects, there isn't anything. So the idea is, why is there anything rather than nothing? 
is the first billion dollar question as to why and why it seems to be within a three-dimensional framework that everything exists within. And then it's the idea of how has it come to pass? How has it come into existence? Why is it out there? And the simulation argument is suggesting that in some way it is created out of um, information and it's, it's holographic in some type of, or form. And I think, again, I know Stephen Hawking was quite fascinated by these implications towards the end of his life. And he was particularly interested in the idea of information being lost out of an enclosed system. For example, if the universe is an enclosed system and I went to the edge of a black hole and I threw my iPad into the black hole, technically information would be lost, which then contravenes the second law of thermodynamics that things get converted into something else, but they're never lost. And he concluded that there should be some form of radiation leakage out of a black hole, which has become known as now as Hawking radiation. And that this leakage is, is, is the information of objects that have been sucked into the black hole. So for instance, and again, it's to do with relativity, it's the relative viewpoint of if I fall into a black hole, I will sense falling into a black hole, but from an observer's point of view, I will be smeared on the edge of the black hole. And the idea is that everything that has ever existed and can ever exist in some way is smeared out on the edge of the expanding universe. The idea is, for instance, imagine the universe um, as it is now. Thirteen. Can I? Can I? Can I, 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 I? When you said with that, with the with the whole holographic universe idea, so. Do you, when you said anything that has happened or could have, did you say that could, that has, this is, we, we're talking about the yeah, future as well? This, this is again when we're talking about Hawking's top-down hypothesis. Right. And the top-down hypothesis is that, again, going back to everything being in some way already encoded into whatever we're yeah. talking about here. And the idea that, as we were saying before, you know, whether the collapse of the wave function takes yeah. place or not. And of course, we could then counter argue, you know, the collapse of the wave function doesn't take place because, you know, there could be the many worlds interpretation that says that the collapse of the wave function never happens and it just continues forever. But the idea that in some way, everything that can happen and will happen already exists in this kind of timeless, uh, what, um, uh, Julian Barber called Platonia, this kind of place outside what we'd recognize, I suppose, as the Pleroma, using a Gnostic term. And everything that can exist, exists in there and is then created or programmed within this as we have a time flow, that the idea that there's a time flow. But in fact, there's a timeless place where everything just is. That seems such a ridiculously complicated idea for, to me. I'm always looking for the simplest solution. No, that no, applying like, Occam's razor, applying Occam's that, razor. That, which that, is... that just feels like, really? So in what difference does that make? If, if, isn't that just basically going what we already know, which is potentially it's anything, but it's right now it's this. And, and we also know that what it will become is something which incorporates all of this, but will be different. And the, that it could, it's like, do we really need to go to those places? Well, it's going, to the, it's going to the ultimate question of philosophy, isn't it? As to why is there something rather than nothing? You know, why surely if the most simple form is the most natural form, see that, why see that does, does anything that exist like, in the first see, place? One of the, I use the word potential um, in 
uh, soul stories going look what do we you know mm. taken actually from brian swim the cosmologist was like what do we know that that this came from well it came from the potential for this and but and i and i still like that but i have a problem with it i have i have a problem with just potential let alone all potentials because it feels like an, i'm looking to if i'm going to put something at the beginning whatever i put at the beginning and I don't mean this necessarily in time because maybe it goes back universes and universes, but I mean mm -hmm. metaphysically, the ground, if you will. Yes. Whatever I put at the ground, I can't explain. So, you know, the whole problem with the religious worldview is you put God at the beginning, it's a pretty damn big thing to put at the beginning you haven't explained. My problem, even with my own worldviews that I've had in the past, is I've put things like consciousness or, you know, awareness at the beginning. It also feels like a pretty damn big thing because it turns often with that comes all sorts of little intentions and, and suddenly you've got God again. And, and so for me, it was like, look, what I've started to, to the, this is the road I'm, this is what I'm exploring, Tony. It's all it is really. It's, it's mm -hmm. going, what's the simplest thing? Well, when I look at it, I think, well, this is the simplest quality that everything has is what you could call being. It's isness. And so what, so it feels like if there's a thing which we can put as the ground, the great name for it would be just simply being, which is an old philosophical idea, but the, and that that is in the process of becoming. That's that's gr and that mm. there, there is. Yeah, a I'm with you on that. Whereby, yeah. and what's the simplest thing? Well, you can take the Tao Te Ching or the Kabbalah or the Gnostics with their syzygies, and it's like, well, the one is two, and that's a mathematical statement. So you've got the idea of a bit, a yes/no, a piece of. In what's the simplest information? Whereas John Wheeler, who we mentioned earlier, said, well, it's a yes/no. It from bit. Yeah. yeah, it's a yes/no. So that's like, that's the simplest thing. So the nature of reality then becomes uh, the one in relationship to itself or the one as two. So it's a relationship and everything has that quality then of relationship, everything. There's nothing. But how does, how, does, how does the one become two? You know, it's one of the kind of the deep philosophical questions, isn't it? You know, we're talking here things like the orange soft and everything my else. Answer so to how, that, do, how does it become two? My answer to that is it doesn't. Um, and, and this is, of course, just a, you know, it's no answer at all, really. But my own feeling is like it doesn't become two. It is two. That's the nature of what this is. The nature is this is the one in relationship to itself. That's what it is. It's not the one. That's nothing. It's mm. the one in relationship to itself. That's what it is. And that, and that it's in an emergent process of becoming through which the information constantly builds on itself by interacting with itself which is subject and object on every single level right from the simplest to the most complex and as it does it emerges and the thing which emerges from it isn't lesser it's not like this is not real and really it's just digital no it's this that has become this and then this has become the psyche and the psyche in my view is becoming god that actually the whole thing is the universe coming to the most emergent thing possible. It's, and, and, and that there's a, a growing evolution of everything based on what's been before. So that it's, that's why I say it's taken the Gnostic thing and put it on its head. It's like, no, rather than the emanation, which is this rather pessimistic view, which they understandably had of the fall down. So you fall from God and then the Pleroma and then that fucks up and you get the Kenoma and then blah, 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 until you see it. Oh God, how do we get home? Rather mm. than that, the simplest thing you can imagine, which is the one in relationship to itself, emerging in ever more complex and 
and and emergent more not, not say it's not even necessarily more complex but in the way that the past builds on what's been before reaching greater and greater states of emergence until you've got life until you've got psyche until even i think you might be able to reach beyond that altogether and, and find the universe conscious of itself not as where it's come from but where it's going so would you define your model as being teleological then in its no. development there is there is a plan there is no or is it just accidental randomness i i i think it's what I, I, I want to try and avoid putting all these things at the beginning because that feels like the problem. So I feel like the, the, the thing which is so compelling about the rather horrendous materialist reductionist vision of the world, why is it so compelling? Because it seems to match our experience on the levels it describes. Yes. So if you look at the evolution of the, of the universe on the level it's described, it seems like, yeah, it's a meaningless accidental universe. And even with the beginning of life, you know, my, my pet fun example, just because it makes me laugh, is 250 million years of dinosaurs. I mean, if, you've, if it's going, you know, if it's heading towards this great vision, it's like, really? And, you know, uh, uh, the, the brutality of nature and the horrendous suffering, all of the things, which makes it impossible for me to put God at the beginning, because God at the beginning is the demiurge. He's a madman. Mm. He's, he's, he's a fuckwit. He's, he's cool. He's crazy. I don't like him. So I, I don't want him at the beginning. I don't think he's at the beginning. I don't think he exists at all. I think actually we're in a movement towards the greater in which the, that it keep, it's manifesting itself on greater levels so that meaning and teleology can come in on a certain level. So with biology, you can maybe start talking about teleology because it, it, organisms develop a, uh, a, a, um, a telos. They want to become mm. this. There's, there's growth and development. There's also the need, the desire to stay alive. You're getting all the things which will really come to fruition in the greater animals like ourselves. And then you've got the, the growth from that of the psyche, the imaginal realm, and now we've got story. And this is a really key idea for me, which plays into the ideas that we were talking about in terms of like meaning and the future. What I really want to play with, Tony, and I think you might get this, I don't know if you'll agree with it, but I think you'll get it. it let's, take the, let's take the computer model, just because it's easy. My sense is the universe has evolved into a story it's become a story and that's what we're in that's what the psyche is that's what it's in it's all meaning story things are related not through causality but through resonance through meaning through narrative and that exists on all these levels at once so when i play my computer games with my kid it's functioning as, as ones and zeros mm. it's functioning as machine code and it's functioning as story and all of those levels are seamlessly working together and that existence as i'm experiencing it is the same which is why if I look at the lower levels, it is relentlessly cause and effect. But actually, also it's magical and synchronicities happen. <laughs> and there's meaning and there's the whole imaginal experience and the daemon and all of those things have emerged from it and they exist now together so that they're all happening at once and not, not one thing. Because that's interesting. So going back to the, the computer analogy you used and the computer games that your, your children play, in that story comes from, yeah, at a, a, a basic level, it's, it's digital information and it is then 
it's then honed into what your your screen then designs and everything else on the screen shows you an alternate place that you can actually inhabit and wander around in supposedly a three-dimensional wandering around but somebody has designed that somebody has designed the narrative somebody has already designed the story in other words the story has been designed by a computer software person and then you exist within that story which then suggests that if this is a story and i might have misunderstood what you were meaning here but if this is then a story the story has to have a creator has to have an author of some description or is the story randomly just evolving within itself it, it, it it's just i think it's happening. evolving within itself but not randomly so so what a key idea for me is about the nature of time and i don't mean i, I don't mean time measurement like einstein means i mean time just as one thing follows another yeah okay uh, causality if you like mm. that, that everything builds on the thing that's happened before so one of the key things for me is like okay so if everything builds every moment builds on the moment before and must incorporate it then yeah. all of the past is present because all that information is is here everything T. S. everything yes T.S. Eliot, T.S. Eliot, The Four Quartets. Uh, All time pressed is in time present. Yeah, you know, had a big influence on me. So, so for me, it's like I've changed the talking about the idea of time passing and talked about it accumulating, so that there's an accumulation. So time is expanding, like space is expanding. That each new moment incorporates everything that's happened before, so that the amount of information is increasing. So I've started thinking. I mean, I think it was um, Purse. Uh, in, uh, Charles Sanders Peirce originally, mm. uh, um, mm. you know, the, Rupert Sheldrake has become famous for this idea of drop the laws of the universe, think about the habits of the universe. Lee Smolin, the physicist, is talking very similarly. Uh, the metaphor that I've started thinking of is the algorithms, which is an obvious borrow from computers, that what's happening is the information as it's accumulating is becoming the algorithms or the laws or the habits of nature which govern how i move my hands or how the microphone works the laws of everything the other the other name you could give for the same thing is the wisdom of nature it's because it's learning it's a self it's a self-generating self-learning thing and that that goes right the way up into the to the realm of narrative where it's working on a completely different level, where all of where you and I are, are interacting as stories, you know, and that's really how we experience it, isn't it, Tony? You know, when I mm -hmm. started talking to you, it was like, oh, Tony, I, you know, and then you, oh, well, I read your book, and it's all a story, because mm -hmm. that's what matters to us, because we are. This is the story of Tim making the story of Tony, and what you're meeting is everything I've ever been, and what I'm meeting is everything you've ever been, and then in our interaction, we're now different. Now this has happened, and this will always be part of us. So that kind of, and then we bring meaning and it's not like we make the meaning up. We're, we, we are the meaning. We are the, we are the level in which the universe creates meaning. And then we search for better meanings. So the meaning I had it 10 years ago, it was pretty good at the time. This one's better, which is why I'm excited by it. It's not Because it's, it's the idea, isn't it? And you know, I've heard it mentioned many times that, that the universe itself is using using us to become self-aware of itself and it's developing consciousness and in this i'm reminded of the writings of um, philip k dick which you know i, I did a, a biography of a few yeah, years yeah. ago and of course one of the central concepts that he has he wrote an incredible story called the divine invasion and in it there is a young man i think he's called manny who is is god 
who's existing in California in the 1960s, but is blissfully unaware of the fact that he's God. And of course, we can take this back to, you know, to the idea of the platonic idea of anamnesis, you know, and the loss of forgetting. And that we, as singular emanations of a greater something, are unaware of the fact of what we are and what we are in the greater form of things. And that the universe, it was funny, I did an interview yesterday um, for, for another podcast. And one of the things we were discussing was this wonderment that we have as we're all on this trip, we're all discovering. And it's one of the things, I think it's fascinating talking to you because I think we discussed this earlier on that I very much come from a, from a very materialist reductionist worldview. And I need to understand how things work mechanistically. And that's why I, I go into the things like the simulation arguments and everything, because I come from that point of view and I, I need the science to make me understand. And I've never been able to make that leap to, to saying, right, okay, let's, let's go with instinct. It was something we were discussing. I'm not sure whether we were discussing it privately before we started, but this idea of this instinctive leap of faith almost to say, look, I need my daemon to lead me here. I need, I need to just pull things together instinctively rather than pulling them together scientifically. And I still cling to those structures like crazy and I don't want to pull myself away. But the things you're saying here are resonating with me because I'm thinking, no, I can see where he's coming from in that viewpoint because it's all a great mystery, isn't it? Everything is so intriguing. Yeah, everything for me, and I think you know this about me, um, Tony, but you know, everything for me, that's the foundation. The foundation is I don't know anything. And then from Mm. that, what can actually explain this best uh, and then find that and push it like mad and see if it falls over. And if it falls over, find something better. And if it doesn't fall over, keep going with it for now. And so the, the, the essential thing I think where I've been drawn is what if there's a, there's, if, what if we can say, look, the simple way of getting this, what this is, and is it, it's the emergence, it's, it's the realization of potentiality on ever more emergent ways. That's what it is. And, the, and when I, and I look around me and I go, and all those ways are still there. I mean, there's, there's quantum possibilities, can't see those, but I can see matter and it's being matter like, and it does certain things. And then there's biology and my, my plant there. And then there's psyche, this other thing, which is not in space, not in material space, it's in its own space, which is all about meaning and narrative. And what if there's one narrative we can tell, which means that the scientific narrative as it's, evol- as it's developing is not that far off for me up until biology. It's like, it does really well with physics. Mm. Very interesting. You know, I love it. And then biology, we're getting interesting. And then because of its reductionism, it wants to stop there and reduce everything really ultimately to physics. Whereas it feels like it itself, it through the evolutionary story has come up with a different, completely different perspective, which is emergent. That's it. It's, it's created that. If you continue that and just go, you know, the, the, it doesn't end there. This realm in which you're thinking the most important thing in your existence it's not a kind of epiphenomenon. <laughs> yes. It's the most emergent level of reality. Of course it is. And it exists. And it's not, and it's not if you get an informational view, it's not difficult to say that because well, the one I love is if you look at the information you're receiving on a biological level, 
there's a monkey making funny noises right now. But the information you're hearing on an imaginal level is meaning. Yes. And it cannot be reduced to the funny noises. It just can't. It's more information. And that is, that is a phenomenally powerful analogy, I think, because one of the things that over the years, I mean, I've been fascinated by language, how language works, how it is that spontaneous sounds, as you say, sounds being made by a monkey effectively can resonate in my brain. And my brain can take those sounds and create ideas. You know, it, it, it's, it's this wonderful concept of, of how this happens. And funny enough, I was reading recently about the transition between Greek philosophy and um, Egyptian philosophy and why Greek philosophy was different. And I'm particularly interested in the Eleusian mysteries. And I'm particularly interested in Neoplatonism. And in, in fact, sorry, I should say the pre-Socratics and very much the ideas of Greek philosophy. And there was this wonderful comment that was made. And I thought, what an incredibly clever way of seeing it. And it's the idea that effectively ancient um, Egyptian hieroglyphics are very much representational of the things they're discussing. So, you know, and, but funnily enough, a friend of mine, um, Sarah James, has, sh has shown me that that's not necessarily the case, that hieroglyphics actually had ideas within them, and they weren't just pictograms, they, they were deeper than that. But the ancient Greeks were the first to actually create a language in which the symbols represented sounds, like we do, you know, D-O-G, dog, but they're the sounds and the letters mean the sounds, which means that suddenly we associated a dog with something that was um was abstract That's which a was a symbol job, on a page it? and it's suddenly a different way of seeing the world yeah. and seeing the world in an abstract way and when when plato then started spinning around with his forms and everything else as well and it's how language structures you know i suppose you're aware of the sacred wolf hypothesis of how language structures ideas and how the very words we use sort of almost creates the world around us because you were discussing earlier you know the qualia of red and of course, the idea is that it is because we have a specific term red that particularly describes a particular form of the electromagnetic spectrum. But if we had a language that was different, I always use the analogy of indigo within, within the Newtonian um, idea of the rainbow. Of course, the re we can't differentiate indigo particularly well, but he needed it because he needed seven, because of course he was a mystic and he needed yeah, seven, so he needed the seventh color. So he creates this color, but now we see it. It's as if we now see it because our culture has decided this is now part of our reality scheme and it exists out there. So if we go back to the other theme we were talking about before, um, it, this feels like a, a nice little thing to draw back to so that when i was going look this is the one in relationship to itself and everything is a subject and everything is an object and what reality is is the emergence of that connect of that relationship um if it, and and i said look, i don't i don't think we need qualia because what i'm looking at is the world it's the mm. information of the world as perceived by this level of biological information it, that's what it perceives and and then it feels like, but what we didn't do was go on to the psyche. And then, of course, once you've got the psyche, now I'm not just seeing red, I'm seeing red on my house. And that's a whole narrative idea. That's my house. That's where I live. I, my daughter was born there. Did a little, and then suddenly, and then, like you said, and then if I can, you know, I'm looking out, I'm not a gardener. So I'm looking at the garden. I just see flowers. But if I was a gardener, I wouldn't see flowers. I'd see that flower and this and that. Yeah. And, and I, and, 
and and so then you see ah that then the meeting then is not is, there's the biological meeting and then there's the soul meeting with the with the world with the conceptual world and what, what's lovely about why i love doing this is because you and i are connecting completely on that level pretty much our bodies are like, oh, i wave my hands mm. i have to i don't know why and but where where we're connecting is all on that non-material conceptual level and we're passing conceptual information and responding and making links and well it's again isn't it one of the things in my new book i i discussed the concept of the egregorial in terms of the egregorial as, as, a, as a, a kind of quasi-magical term and also the egregorial as something that is a thought creation that is created by explain people. what that like means we're creating I'm, I'm fascinated by this and i just want to be able to I, I, this is an area i'm very pleased you brought up because i want to talk to you about it so explain exactly what you mean the egregorial is the idea, I think it was an idea that I first came across with the work of a guy called Mark Stavish, who is an American writer. And Stavish argues that there, 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 are, there are thought forms that can be created by collective minds that become greater than the, the individuals in the group. You know, there was a very famous book written many years ago, and I must actually research who wrote it so I can actually cite the name of the person. But it was something I call the mass psychology of crowds. And the idea that you get a crowd of people together and they, they create something greater than the individuals within it. The crowd yeah. takes on its own psychology. Yeah. Now, research has shown that in some occasions we can seemingly create almost external thought forms within external reality. I'm reminded of the experiments, the Toronto experiment that took place in uh, the late 1970s where these guys created this spirit um, a kind of a spirit creature that they created and of course we have the concept of tulpas and everything else but there's also the idea of the way in which concepts take on a mind of their own literally a mind of their own like advertising you know there are certain advertising tropes that seem to be out there but there's also when people talk like we're talking now there seems to be something created that's not Tim and it's not Tony, it's something greater. Yeah. And there's this kind of resonance and we start to resonate in the same way. Yeah. Yeah. And there's this sort of up, upswelling of, of something that it's almost tangible. Now with some of the things you were saying earlier on, I kept thinking, yeah, I can see how I'm with you on that. And on that idea that somehow there's this kind of thought matter that rises up and then if that is the case from the point you were making before is it that's why we see the world differently to diff to other people we, we discuss this how in my group how it is we are drawn together because we see the world in a similar way and we are attracted to each other because we see the world in a different way but are we then creating the world around us because of our collective ideas and therefore everything we see reinforces you know it's almost like you know, in, in psychology, they use the term, don't they, of um, when things take place and magical things take place, that it's somehow um, our, our attention bias. We look for things because our attention is looking for them. We see synchronicities because we're looking for them. They don't exist there in the reality, but our worldview yeah, those people them. have clearly not had many synchronicities the, yeah, I, I mean i think attention bias is definitely a reality i'm sure we all noticed mm. that um that's definitely real um but i'm sure well you know the people that i'm drawn to because of who i am uh, everyone experiences 
oh my god the most outrageous serendipity synchrodepity what was the lovely word synchrodepity um, synchrodepities yeah. trademark brilliant i love it synchrodepities uh so you know it's like for, you know it's like no that's a desperate attempt again to reduce it to get rid of a what is a soul phenomena a narrative mm. phenomena so 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 the egregorials i um i there's something very interesting about this. I, there's lots of things I want to ask you. So, do you? So, when you said concepts take on a, a, a kind of like a life of their own, one of the things that's always struck me about, um, say, the ancient gods of Greece, for instance, mm. is that they're really concepts. They're like justice. We all are, we're yeah. into justice. So, and she looks like this, and you know, we're so. Oh, I'm into music. So, I've, and, and all of the. And so, I'm wondering whether that's a phenomena with the arising of the psyche as a objective sphere in its own right there's the imaginal realm whether whether information on that on that, that when we're focusing in on these primal concepts aspirational concepts often like justice or love or thing, that that they take form and then by social convention develop a particular backstory and all the rest of it, and then start to have an identity much like we might build a building yeah there that's the building and yeah because in, in which case that would explain why people have subtly different worldviews for instance i'm not a religious person so therefore the religious mindset is something i cannot understand but there are people i know who are highly intelligent who are religious and therefore in their world their observations reinforce their beliefs because they see in things things i don't see um, but it doesn't necessarily mean they don't exist. It means that their, their egregorial world is subtly different to mine. And they see the world in it. Because, for instance, I find it fascinating, you know, on most street corners these days, you see Jehovah's Witnesses on every street corner. And they are so enthusiastic about the, the, the belief system that they must read a very different history of the Jehovah's Witness religion to the history I know of Jehovah's Witnesses, you know, and Charles Taze Russell and, and, and Rutherford and everybody else. And the various times that they've claimed that the world was about to end and it didn't. And they interpret that as very differently to the way I interpret it. Yeah. Which means we're all interpreting, we're all sub in these kind of subjective worlds. But and you're saying more than that, aren't you, Tony? With this egregorial, it feels like that can be, a, that, that insight, which is definitely deep and real, and for all of us, the necessity to doubt, to be able to mm. unpick your world and look out from it and see something from other people's perspective, how important that is, how difficult, but how important it is, how exciting too. But th that could be understood in terms of a conceptual framework, but that could be individual. But what's interesting about what you're exploring here, as I understand it, is the idea that there's an objective quality which yeah. can arise maybe for you individually in terms of a, a figure in your own imagination but also collectively so we have collective figures the archetypes of Jung, for instance maybe very basic ones totally and yes then, and that therefore there the, these things are populating the collective imaginal realm so and and whether actually that's happening all the time for instance the, you and i have just met this had this not just met but just had this conversation mm. now if we entertain some of the ideas which we've shared so far that 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 we can understand everything is emergent information then the information which has existed mainly on a marginal level of our conversation still exists it's now part of the backstory it's part of the past 
and that therefore the imaginal information that we hold collectively is in some small way different and that other mm. people's responses will be different for our conversation um yes. just in the way of you know I, i'm sure you must get it I, I get it all the time whereas where i realize i've had an idea completely independently decades after somebody else and my sense of gratitude of oh you helped me have this idea we never met but somehow yes. you clearing a space and, and my own aspiration for my own life and death is that you know i can't probably have that much effect on the world but maybe i can clear some ideas away and a route through that others will stumble upon completely independently because i have <laughs> yeah. done my work and that there's some there's some delight in that that's a very interesting idea and one of the things that we were discussing again before we started was about why we write and why we do this and i have that same feeling that at some stage in the future somebody will come across my writing and say that's a really interesting idea i'm going to run with that as if we're kind of seeding the future yeah as if we are giving information to other people to carry it forward in some way and again, you know, the, the idea of the egregorial, I think, really fascinates me in the sense it seems to be like almost creating thought forms. Because, yeah. you know, it's the idea, it's almost going back, isn't it, to, again, the platonic forms, the idea that there is out there in the egregorial realm, in the, in the pleroma, there are these ideal types that exist and we see them within these three-dimensional realities, but they're kind of pale reflections of something that's far more interesting and, and unique. Now, I love that idea. I, I just love the idea that somehow we are not, we are not coming up with ideas, we're excavating them. You know, I used the example once when, when I was writing my first book, I felt that I was digging a hillside and finding things in the hillside and pulling them together. And I use the analogy, I felt like I was Frederick Schliemann at the, 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 the Hill of Hisselook, discovering the very different levels of Troy. And you suddenly pick something out and you think, oh, that's really fascinating, but you can't put it in context. And it's only when you dig deeper that suddenly that relates to that. And you suddenly think, oh, wow, these are the things I and we need other people that. and debates and discussions like this to help us do that and that's why this has been such a wonderful conversation you, and you, i hope other people see that <laughs> i completely get that 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 you know that kind of spatial analogy for for thinking because i mean you mentioned t.s Eliot, and i can distinctly remember um being with peter gandhi that i wrote all the jesus mysteries with and all those books and it would become a common thing for us but it was, it was like, ah, oh, hang on, we'd have some insight about the nature of existence or the work we were doing. And one of us would say, oh, T.S. Eliot stood on this hill. Oh, yeah, so he has. Wow. This is what he was describing. Oh, yes, yeah, so it is. Or Walt Whitman's been here. Look, look Walt was here. <laughs> it's like, yeah, so it is. This is, what they, this is where they came to. Um, yeah, it's when you discover, isn't it, that you think you've come up with these incredibly original ideas and you, you realise that the metaphysical poets were writing about them in the 17th century. Yeah. I mean, my favourite line of poetry, which I put up on my Facebook wall and my Instagram wall a couple of days ago, because I, I just love it. It's the, the William Wordsworth um, lines written a few miles above Tintin Abbey. You know, where, you know the, the line where he says, in the, in, the, in the sight of setting suns, I have seen something intangible the idea that we sometimes and i don't know about you but sometimes i feel that you're touching upon something incredible but you haven't got the language to verbalize it and you haven't and this is why your point of coming at it from instinct 
sometimes works because it's you cannot explain it you cannot you can't put words to it but you know it's there and sometimes when my group and we meet and we we all chatter away like mad like this and we'll do it for two or three hours and i walk away and i'm high for hours afterwards i'm feeding off the the yeah. egregorial energy yeah yeah of the group yeah you know and i just wish the rest of humanity had that kind of sense of excitement and wonderment about the world the idea as socrates said that you know the more i know the less i know but because i would discover the less i know that excites me it doesn't make me feel down it makes me feel wow the only thing i worry about is how many years have i got left to discover all these other wonderful things um because the world is I, I'm, I wander around in awe all the time. I just do, you know. And the more books I read, the more ideas I come across, the more I think, wow, isn't in the intellectual world just so exciting? You know, talking about ideas is everything, isn't it? You know. Tony, I think that you just brought us to our the best possible conclusion I can possibly imagine for this conversation. You just summed up, and uh, I and also. I think managed to excuse us for just heading off in so many different directions that we never, we never followed um, because both of us suffer from the same obsessions and, and, and totally. love, love of this, these ideas. And so each one leads to another. And yeah. It's you know, been, we've, we've discussed this before. We've got to do the peak and freak show peak just, and freak to, show, just yeah. for the sound. <laughs> it's, it works so well. So yes, I've, uh, I love your mind. It's been a beautiful experience connecting with it and uh, all the things that you've discovered and all the things that you are exploring. And uh, it's been great to share some of the ones. And I'm yours. But remember that I would not be here without reading your book. That is so that's a that, that is a wonderful, a wonderful thing to know. Um, wonderful. So I'm doing wonderful well. to talk to you, Tim. Absolutely right. fantastic. Thank you.